A lot of times it is easy to sell when I'm a third party, when I'm able to watch two people talking and I don't feel like I'm personally in that conversation, I'm able to speak to it. But when I'm in a conversation, sometimes I'm so caught up in me understanding my point of view that it prevents me from seeing their point of view. And ultimately their point of view is the important one in the conversation from a sales standpoint. Plug into the minds of the world's cutting edge innovators, visionaries, and thought leaders who are rewriting the rules of sales and success. It's your time to make an impact. I am your host, Jason Mark Campbell, and this is the Selling with Love podcast. Welcome back, everybody, to the Selling with Love podcast. This is your host, Jason Mark Campbell. Very excited today having Craig Swanson joining me, the man behind Creative Techs, a company in tech and Creative Live. If you've ever looked at some of the trainings that they do there, some amazing speakers have been on the platform, people you might have known, such as Brené Brown, Tim Ferriss, and so many other experts worldwide that were sharing their messages, whether it's about lifestyle, money, creative skills like photography, design, etc. A real business that got grown into a large enterprise with over 70 employees that was really trying to bring more awareness towards the types of things we can learn online with digital goods. And I'm so excited to have Craig with me here, who's actually now very much focused on helping people that have maybe an audience and maybe a following, but haven't really realized what opportunity exists in digital goods. We're going to unpack what opportunity looks like there. What are some of the biggest shortcomings if you've built a lot of audience and awareness, but maybe you haven't figured out how to monetize or sell? and make sure once we bridge that gap, we can do it effectively and see how you can scale beyond the million and do more. Craig, it's such a pleasure to have you here. Welcome to the podcast. Jason, thank you for having me. This is great. I've been looking forward to this all day. Yay. Well, you know, for you, it's afternoon for me, early morning. So I only had a shorter amount of time to look up to it, but I'm super excited for it. Now, we were talking just before we hit record. There's a lot of people that are focused around followings, right? Like, People want to get Instagram followings. You're trying to, you know, maybe get popular on YouTube, become a YouTuber. But there's this whole other side of the equation that most people miss out when they want to build a business. And I know that's where you plug yourself in. And I'd love for you to kind of unload what's the issue that happens when someone's so focused on getting followings, but they're not getting the business success they were looking for. So, you know, actually the way you queue up that question almost makes me remember when I made that transition myself very early on. I don't think we do it as much. We're used to get an email every time you got a new Twitter follower. And so I remember just kind of that endorphin hit of Twitter followers that I would get. And then eventually it becomes just kind of a problem because your inbox is just getting too many of those. And so you end up turning it off. And the day you turn off your notification about getting a new follower, that's kind of a threshold you get to. I experienced that same threshold with PayPal, which was a completely different endorphin hit when somebody online spent some money buying something that we had created. The day I had to turn that email notice off, and it got really unwieldy in my inbox before I finally turned off that notice because I liked those notices so much. That was a really significant day when I basically no longer wanted to be notified when someone had made a purchase. But the way you queued it up, there is a real... I mean, there's a similarity in a lot of ways. There's a similarity in a lot of ways between the act of someone online taking the act of wanting to follow and listen to something that I want to say or someone wants to say compared to actually putting some money down and basically committing and saying that there is some value here that I want to have for myself that I'm going to pay for right now. And that transition can be a really uncomfortable transition for a lot of people that have not made it, depending on where they are and what their relationship with money and everything else is. So I'm curious where we're going to go with this, but they are both very similar and yet they can feel so different on the other side of that. Mm. That's an interesting 
journey and kind of a milestone that I think for people that might not have reached that point yet, might not even have thought that this could be a reality. I'm currently right now building up a YouTube channel and that's because I've been doing this podcast. I mean, the podcast has been getting, you know, millions of downloads. And then I realized, oh my God, we're doing these interviews. I could do videos and I should be putting that on YouTube. And so the channel has been growing and I'm at about 1,400 now subscribers on YouTube. So we're putting it out and I would get notifications when people comment on stuff on YouTube. And I still have those on and I get excited when I see the comments, but you're right. Once you hit a critical mass and that disappears, then you start thinking about, well, what's the next thing I need to conquer? I guess at that point, you talk about the sale being a very different energy. Can you talk about, you know, you work with these clients that might've, you know, got to the point where they have those subscribers, they have those followers, they're engaging, they have an engine for content. Mm -hmm. What are the biggest things that hold them back to unlocking this kind of revenue side? What are the fears that usually get in the way? Okay, so if we wanna focus on fears, you know what, right now we are in the process of building a store for a trainer in the fitness industry that has a about 100,000 person YouTube following. Really strong gauge, a lot of expertise, puts on conferences, basically runs a really successful business, super dialed in. And he has created and not put up to market dozens of products. So I would say that some people don't have this block, but there are people that are creators, that create content very easily, that create just flows of content, that are missing something that goes from the actual act of creation to the act of putting that out to sell it and figuring out that relationship with their audience. If you've never received money directly from an audience and you've only used that audience as a tool to get benefits elsewhere for advertising or for other things. Making the shift to a direct relationship with an audience can be, it's a very different experience and I think it's incredibly liberating once you've gone down that path, but it can also be challenging and bring a lot of stories to the forefront with people about their belief of what will happen if they do that. Mm. I teach a lot about you know selling and my whole concept is about selling with love, right? And I've always been someone working within organizations selling other people's products. And I've noticed the difference in energy when I started selling my own product. And I know I'm not alone in this, where there seems to be so much more on the line, a lot more responsibility that comes with it. And maybe I'm not as bullish as when I just need to just do this ad for this third party sponsor that's paying me. And when you're starting to sell directly to the people, is it just because, oh my God, now I'm taking directly from them. And now it's like, it's a weird thing. Like what's going on here? Well, I will talk for myself. Hmm. I am able to sell others to a degree that I don't access that part of myself when I'm selling myself. And so my guess is when you're doing an ad read, for example, there's a part of you that is not personally engaged in that and your judgment of you is not on the line. And so you basically are crafting the pitch that may come from you with as much honesty as possible, but also as an ownership that is unencumbered by the fact that you are not part of that transaction. When I am selling myself, I'm running into my own self-worth issues around whether I can live up to the promise that I feel comfortable making for myself. I've been through a number of companies that we built and sold. And one of the things I started to notice in myself is I started to get very uncomfortable with my own personal resume. I started to not feel like I could live up to what my past results had been that were completely legitimate. Not like anything was missing. That's not like I was fabricating anything. And no one else in my life had any problems talking with confidence about my past results, but me, me today 
did not necessarily feel as confident living up to what my past behavior and results had created. And that is one thing that when you are selling another brand as opposed to yourself, there is, it is a harder thing when my name is on everything and when I am the public figure and also when I am holding space as a public brand, talking and basically engaging the audience, especially in a way where my audience is large enough that I'm giving a lot of value out for free. Hmm. I mean, Craig, you're the man who sold almost $100 million of digital goods, getting involved with so many things. And it's so crazy, right? Like, regardless at what level we get to, it seems like this is something that will stay with us. I'm trying to think back of maybe the earlier days, maybe my early 20s, and I was like, oh, you know, am I worthy enough to be able to speak on this or to sell this? Do I have enough experience? And then I go get some of the experience, and then I realize once I get there, I don't have enough experience to be talking at the next level that I'm going. So it almost seems like a moving goal, but we move forward anyways. And so would you have, like, from your perspective, a word of advice for anyone who feels maybe unworthy and they're trying to sell themselves, put themselves out there, and they see this fear exists? It exists in me. I know that. You're sharing how it exists in you. What would be the word of advice of someone who's maybe not have went as far as you in their journey, who sees that fear and it actually stops them from moving? I mean, I really think there are two things. The first answer is the simplest answer, which is to accept that I'm going to feel the fear and just not pretend otherwise. And so don't make feeling the fear being a reason to not do something, but just know that, okay, I'm at this place. I've been at this place before. This is familiar. I am feeling fear. I'm just terrified. And that has not been the reason to not do it in the past. It's not a reason to not do it today. So that may be easier said than done, although it's actually pretty easy to do once you actually do it. It's a little bit like falling off a high dive the first time. I mean, you may not be a perfect diver, but you know, the thing is, it's pretty easy to actually exit a high dive, even if you're afraid of exiting the high dive. You may not be elegant, but you're probably not going to die. And so I think just the act of stepping through fear repeatedly removes the illusion that fear is something that should keep me from stepping forward. In terms of tactically, in terms of tactically, in terms of sales, I think the biggest reason that I find in myself, and I believe other brand holders sometimes lose the ability to sell themselves in the same way that they sell their products or, or other people's products, is because when it's about me, I have a harder time listening to what my audience is saying and what other people are saying and the other person in the conversation. A lot of times it is easy to sell when I'm a third party, when I'm able to watch two people talking and I don't feel like I'm personally in that conversation, I'm able to speak to it. But when I'm in a conversation, sometimes I'm so caught up in me understanding my point of view that it prevents me from seeing their point of view. And ultimately their point of view is the important one in the conversation from a sales standpoint. That's an incredible insight and so true. I've never heard it explained that way before. Is being an observer is so easy when you're not the person involved fully. And when you are the observer, it's kind of like anything. Hey, I worked at Mind Valley, so meditation, you have to observe yourself and be present. All of that is so much simpler when you get to be away from it. And so that's an important practice I would encourage for everybody listening to really step into being an observer within the conversation. When you are looking at your product, you are having those conversations so you can understand them more, I think is absolutely brilliant. And yeah, you're right about this whole thing about do action with realizing this fear is always going to be there. And so now that we've kind of introduced ourselves into some of this tactical stuff, Craig, I know like overcoming these fears, I would assume, and correct me if I'm wrong, but 
getting to the first six figures, a lot of it happens to be mindset, right? Getting over those fears, moving forward anyways. Yet, when we go past the six figures and you want to get to the millions of plus, there's new challenges that come along. And this is, I know, the place that you play a lot with these creators that are looking to put themselves out there, do more digital goods. So I'd love to hear from you on a tactical perspective. What are some of the challenges that usually happen that people don't even expect as they've crossed the six figures and now they're on their road to a million? You know what? That is such a great question. And in fact, actually, we didn't talk about this beforehand, but I lead a entrepreneurs group in Seattle for companies that have done over 250 that are trying to break a million. So it's part of the EO Accelerator program in Seattle. Oh, I'm familiar with EO. Yeah. I'm one of the volunteers. So I'm an EO member and I'm a volunteer leading the Seattle Accelerator program. And that's exactly what we do is we basically coach entrepreneurs that have broken 250 that are trying to figure out how to get up to the next level and get to a million. And I'll tell you what, the simplest version I see recurring again and again and again is you can work hard to get to six figures. Like I can work hard to break $100,000. I think it's even possible to start to approach a million dollars by working super hard, but it is a diminishing result because one person pushing harder and harder and harder, you can only go so far. So really, to be able to break into the next phase, to be able to go from six figures to seven figures, it's a team sport. It is a sport in which we have to enroll the talents of others and rely on the talents of others to be able to carry us the next phase. And just even your face right there, like the wider eyes, that can be a terrifying feeling for an entrepreneur. And it ranges from a terrifying feeling of feeling replaced or feeling like they're maybe not important because they're not making the central decision on everything to guilt that other people are doing work. So it ranges from feeling guilty that other people are doing the work to this personal need to jump in and justify my own existence by making sure I'm the most important person in the room. I will say that, you know, when I'm with entrepreneurs that have all broken the million dollar mark and, you know, are building larger companies, there is this natural conversation they have about teams and recruiting people. And basically, they have made peace with building a company in which other people are carrying a large portion of the load. It is entrepreneurs under a million dollars that are often the superstars in their particular area that have been trying to overuse their skill set to try to get across that line instead of finding a path that lets others carry. That hits a little too close to home, Craig. <laughs> I'm supposed to be doing an interview and here I am feeling all vulnerable and slightly targeted because, you know, I love playing the savior role. You know, even in, before I was an entrepreneur, as an employee, you know, I would love to come in, be the knight in shining armor and be able to save the day. Mm -hmm. And then I see that, oh my God, my lack of proactivity is creating the fires that I get to water down. And then guess what? It wastes time, it wastes resources and being able to rely on others there's this idea in my head that it's like, well, nobody will work as hard as me as the owner of this. And if I get someone else to do it, they won't do it as good as me. And I feel like that might be something holding me back. Well, I'll tell you what, it often takes two or three employees to replace me in roles that I help start. Because I'm a fast starter, let's say I tend to focus on the 20% of the job that I feel has the greatest impact and leverage to be able to get a result. You can either be saying I'm efficient or you can say that I don't complete all my tasks. I just basically do enough to basically get the job done. And then I hire specialists or employees in different areas. And those people do a more complete job. They take the job to a level of execution that maybe I wouldn't. But also along the way, they move a little bit slower. 
and they think of maybe a little more deeply. There is this phrase that is coined a lot with entrepreneurs. If you want to go somewhere fast, go alone. If you want to go somewhere far, build a team. And so one of the things I had to learn as an entrepreneur when I am starting to trust other people is two things. I need to allow the job to be done wrong repeatedly to allow other people to learn how to do it right. And there's two things happening there. One is, regardless of how good they're doing it, it's gonna feel wrong to me as the entrepreneur because I'm not the one doing it. So I almost can't even trust my own judgment. And the second thing is, they need to have the room to make the job theirs. If I'm going to be growing a business in which there are other stakeholders and leaders, I need to give those other stakeholders and leaders room to be able to lead and have stake. And it does mean sometimes that I'm choosing the slower path for longer term gain. And it does mean that sometimes I choose to let a particular day's win not be the exact win that I would have made, but I am allowing other people to do it. I feel like I'm getting myself into some sort of like coaching relationship with you, Craig. But all I can think about, like, as you're having these conversations, and for those who are listening on the podcast, if you do go to YouTube and see the video, I don't know if my video editor is going to show my face while I'm in like deep thought and unfortunately had a moment of losing presence because I'm thinking of my team. I'm thinking of the times that I've jumped in and kind of stopped them in the middle of their progress because I was like, ah, oh, they're not clear on it. It's so much easier and faster if I just go and do it. And then I realized like, oh, look, I've given myself a task, which means I don't have as much bandwidth to work on what is necessary and of high leverage, as you explain, to be able to get it to the next level. I'm sure I'm not alone on this journey. And it sounds like this is a process you've worked with a lot of people on. And worked with myself. I mean, this the only reason I recognize it is because I lived it and still live it to a degree. Like, it is a little bit like the fear where I recognize the emotion and then step through it. I've been onboarding for the last month a new head of marketing, and she's fantastic. But you know what? She is not the fantastic that I had actually thought I had hired. So there are differences in the person that she is versus the fantasy that I had of our new head of marketing. And there are differences in choices and approach that she is coming to that I would have assumed based on my belief system and my approach that I would have chosen differently. And there is this balancing act of leadership, which is to lead in the direction and the goal and the mission and to give her the space to allow her to determine where her leadership is going to be and let her show me where she's really going to be able to thrive. And I'll say, like, there are times where it's really hard when she writes a paragraph different on a call to action than I would, or if her headline is not exactly the way I would do it. And in fact, one of the things I realized is we end up having this conversation. She was giving me drafts of marketing pages, and she plans things out and does things to a degree that is much deeper than I generally go. I tend to look at the headline and the first 140 characters. And so she was crafting, you know, layers deep of strategy. And I was focused on the things that I focus on, which are like the top little mini pitch parts. I'm actually going to kind of riff on this a little bit because the thing I realized is I had this vision of what a VP of marketing would do. And actually, in a lot of ways, the vision of what a VP of marketing would do, she is freeing me up to do some of the things that I've always wanted to do for the company that I thought was in the hands of the VP of marketing. And I actually realized it's a little bit higher up than I thought it was, but I had never seen it that way because I had been so enmeshed in the day-to-day -day details of marketing. And so 
when she basically started taking the load and doing it better than I would have done once I got past the fact that a few paragraphs were written differently than I would have done, then I suddenly found myself working at a higher level than I had anticipated because all these other things were off my plate. It's almost like you sometimes think of hiring so that it can be taken out of your mindset and it's like, all right, this arm is going to be completely handled, but we still have a mind on it as the business owner. It's just that we have to think of it very differently. And there's still a core responsibility, which will be what you mentioned earlier, the highest leverage thing. And so I hope for anybody listening that's on their journey of growing a team can take away from this, knowing that, hey, anyone that you ever hire is not going to be at the same level as you, but will allow you to grow to the next level, which will make them do their job beautifully, probably more thoroughly. And then you're going to be able to get to the next level that is required if you want to go far in business. A key lesson that I definitely want to repeat and make sure people really embody here. So when it comes to actually finding this talent, and I know we're diverging a bit from the sales, but to me, it's almost like the way we define sales is we're in sales all the time. And one of the sales you need to make as someone is building a business is how do you sell this amazing talent to come and join your organization? And I'd say when you're maybe at a quarter million in revenue, some of the types of talents you want to bring in are like A players, but you might not necessarily have the revenue sources that allow you to afford the types of A players. So what's the story that you usually are able to share, to invite, so that you get these incredible people to join your team? I think you hit something right there with the story. First of all, not all A players want to be on a smaller company team. And a lot of A players would be a terrible fit for smaller companies. Because one of the things that happens in a smaller company is we tend to have a lot of generalists. So at a company that is doing 250, 500, somewhere in there, there really isn't a C-level, like a management level, someone that just basically oversees. And so one of the things that sometimes see someone with a fantastic resume, but actually they moved past doing a lot of the work years ago because they're in companies that are large enough to manage. So there is this balancing act of basically figuring out how much tactical do I have to have this person know and how much leadership do I have to have this person know. One of the things that happens with me now, because I've grown and sold and, and developed a number of companies, I usually have several companies going at one time. I started out my search by basically saying what I want is I want someone that I can mentor into the next phase of running this business. So basically I am looking for someone that is tactical today that aspirationally I can mentor into a role to be the person that can be running this company three to five years down the road. Now, that's not a promise. It is more of basically a framing statement for these conversations and for who I'm looking to bring in. When we were having our hiring conversation, we ended up having about three or four long meetings I was really trying to get a sense of her and who she was and her story more than I was necessarily about all the tactical stuff. I tend to rely heavily on personal referrals and my existing network. And so I ended up having a person that was incredibly highly recommended by an entrepreneur that I trust deeply. And with several points of contact that I had in relationship where I had seen her in different places. I knew people that knew her. So I had a lot of personal connection. And so I was less interested in quizzing her on her skill set or her approach as much as I was trying to understand her motivations, what her win was, specifically her relationship with money. Because one of the things I realized early on is when I am hiring someone into a growth role in my business, 
I need to have deep conversations about their relationship with money because their relationship with money is going to influence their ability to sell or inability to sell on the company's behalf. I can take the most talented person that kind of resents the need to sell and I will get worse results than a far less talented person that has a really healthy mindset around what they're doing in a sales relationship and has a money mindset that is conducive with growth. Whew. This is big. And you've been highlighting this subtly since the beginning of our conversation is this money mindset being such a powerful element, whether it's for yourself when you're going out online and you're starting to sell for yourself, you're now talking about it when it comes to the team members. And I'd love to see like, what are these things in the money mindset that we should be looking for in ourselves that we should also be paying attention to in the people we bring in our team? So I think, first of all, I think that we can't listen to someone else's money mindset if we are still noisy on our own. So let's start with that. I have a system I call the money ruler. I try to never talk about a person's relationship with money using actual financial numbers as the increment of conversation. So in other words, I wouldn't have a conversation about whether you're grossing 100,000, a million, 250,000. I mean, I would have that conversation. I would get that number. But what I want to do is I want to understand your personal risk point when it comes to money. Where does the concept of money start to get noisy for you? $100,000, $10,000, $5,000, like We sold a business last year for $10 million. So we were negotiating a company that was acquired for $10 million. These are all just numbers. And it's really easy to assume that someone's emotional response to a fixed number is rational because it is a number. But I could have an emotional response to $10,000 that might not trigger for you for $150,000 or for a million dollars. And so what I'm looking for is what is the ruler I can use? Like what is a large sum of money? We talked about Creative Live. When I was recruiting instructors for Creative Live, I was looking for what is a large financial event in this person's life? Is it a $20,000 weekend workshop? Is it a $100,000 book deal? Is it a million dollar acquisition? I try to have them tell me what the increment is. And then I try to have conversations from this point forward using that increment as my value point. So if someone has said that $20,000 weekend workshop is like kind of this unit that they're really familiar with, I will not talk about how much something might cost. I might not use the phrase $100,000. I might say it's roughly about five of your weekend workshops. And what I'm looking for is I'm looking for this number that is meaningful to them, not to me, but to them. And then I want to try to use that as the analogy for conversations around money. Because otherwise, my own judgments around what a lot of money is and what a little bit of money is gets in the way of me understanding their mindset. Because I might have an emotional reaction at a number, and it may feel like an incredible incredibly rational emotional reaction that feels so justified by math that there is no way that's a universal response to that number only to find out that that person has a completely different relationship with money and I could not access it because my relationship with money was getting in the way yeah it's like when you're negotiating a deal and you're not speaking the same money language you're going to have the short end of the stick because you're basically going to out-negotiate yourself if you have your own insecurities about money and you might cut yourself short. And I think for so many people who might be self-employed, and I want to speak maybe to smaller enterprises that might be listening to this podcast, where you are discounting yourself heavily because 
the resistance to the price, and this is a quote I love to bring up, is the resistance of the price is always in the mind of the seller, not the buyer. And it's our own money beliefs that will make us discount ourselves because we feel our self-worth isn't justified the price that we charge, when really we have to understand the value of the person. And the only way that you get to have that is when you understand their money mindset and you've healed the one that you have. <laughs> healed the one you had. That's such a good way of saying it. Because here's the thing. When it comes to self-worth and money, there's this ebb and flow. I cannot get me to a place where I can put a value on my time, my money, my value until I do my work on me. But at the point I enter a conversation with you, I got to be done with me because you're the only one that matters in this conversation. And if I am trying to fight for my self-value and, and fund my sense of self-value in a conversation with you around price or value or anything else, I'm no longer listening to you. I am only reacting in the moment to what I am emotionally responding to. I have the advantage. I was taken under the arm by a sales trainer or, a, or a, a, a head of sales in one of the companies I was supporting years ago, and he got me into some sales training. And they had this great exercise that I still kind of use today, although it's kind of fallen apart. My threshold's gotten a little bit worse. But we'd have this process of us basically trying to hit how much money was involved in a transaction where we started to get scared or started to pull away or like where we as buyers started to make decisions or approach to that sales process that we don't want to encourage or accept in the people buying from us. And so I think for me, it was probably about $3,500. I was in my 20s, $3,500. I could sell anything, $1,200, $2,000. Like I was doing all these things that were in the unit. Once it kind of got above $3,500, I kind of got a little bit freaked out and was looking for reasons why they were unhappy or why they were not going to take it. And I mean, I was probably making $60,000, $70,000 a year at that point. So that was not an insubstantial amount of money. And the exercise that my coach had me do is take out $3,500 in cash and carry it on my person until I stopped being uncomfortable with it. Oh, wow. So it meant that I was walking around with so much money that it felt like something that I was really going to lose. It meant I went to the gym and like it would be in my wallet and I would be like realizing, okay, someone could break in and like steal this. Basically, it meant that I took the number that I was uncomfortable with and that became my pocket change. That became the money I carried around until I had gotten around the financial panic that I was feeling around that number. And I'm still doing that today. Like I'm constantly looking for a way to try to find where my brain starts to panic at a financial number and to try to figure out how I can engage around that number in such a way that my brain starts to lose some of the financial sense of panic. Hmm. And part of that is because of this technique I use where I don't talk about numbers with people. First of all, I do a lot of talking with people. If we were not recording this and if we were having any type of business conversation, I would be asking about your your you know, your gross, your, your gross sales, like all sorts of numbers. And whether you want to talk to me about them or not, they are a place I'm really comfortable going. And I end up going there with most conversations. And because I use this idea of this money ruler where I'm trying to not add a value judgment on those numbers as much as I'm just trying to find where people's emotional pivot point is around numbers and use that as the unit to then talk about. That becomes the increment. I've been able to have conversations around finances and money and emotion 
with people that are experiencing the emotion so much farther up that chain than me. Like where they're feeling around emotion, they may have two more zeros on their numbers compared to me. Like the amount of their tipping point from when the money noise starts to like cloud their head and they're, and they're like getting distracted might be two additional zeros to the numbers that cause that with me. But because I am using a unit of number for them, so like I might be talking about you know, the number of $100,000 vacations are represented by this, or like whatever that increment is, it keeps me from engaging my emotion around that. And it also teaches me a little bit that there is not a fixed emotional response to a fixed emotional number or to a fixed number. Like these are all just stories that we are putting on top of those numbers. But because socially it feels like math, it feels like science, it doesn't feel like an emotional story. It feels like justified fact. You sent me again on a mind adventure, thinking about some of the deals I'm negotiating now and where my threshold happens. And me, it was a half a million dollar deal that was coming across my desk. And I realized how much anxiety, how much doubt, how much is like, oh, am I worth it? You know, if this is two months work, is this, and I start having those kinds of doubts. And now the idea of self-worth and money mindset, I realize I've went into that space of my own mind. And I think this idea of being able to be surrounded with people that have so much more zeros behind them gets you to be more comfortable with the bigger numbers as you move forward. This was a great conversation, Craig. And I hope for everybody else listening that you had as many little aha moments, regardless of where you are on your journey, to start realizing how important it is for you to look into this money mindset, to understand the blocks and the challenges that you have on your road to a million, how going at it alone is only going to get you there fast, but maybe not that far. And getting to the million plus plus is going to be a far journey. We need to build the teams. We need to have that trust. We need to realize that what got us here, which might be the hard work, we'll need to look at being more smart work with other team members who are going to be doing jobs that are better than you. As you can tell, Craig has been around the block, has had a chance to scale these organizations, and I've seen the common issues not only in himself, but for other people that he's actually had a chance to work with in these companies. And it was such a fruitful conversation, which we diverted off of sales, but more around entrepreneur lifestyle. And I know for myself, I mean, the whole time I'm just being thrown into thoughts about my own challenges that I have within my organization and having your voice, by the way, great microphone, Craig, I love your voice, um, has been so uh, helpful. So I'm, I'm, I'm very, very grateful for having you come on the show, Craig. And as you know, there's a question I always like asking people that come in as a kind of a way to wrap this up is you are on the Selling with Love podcast. And I'd love to ask you, what does selling with love mean to you? All right. So I didn't come in with an answer, but I think for me, selling with love means guiding people to a clarity of a future that they can have or not have a clarity on the investment it would take and allowing them the space to make a choice to claim that or to not claim that. And for me to be unattached to the result. Wow. That's really beautiful. I've never heard anyone explain it that way. And I love your perspective. Craig, thank you for your energy. Thank you for your time. Thank you for your wisdom. This was an incredible conversation. And for everybody else listening, I'm going to put some links so you can go and discover more from Craig Swanson at craigswanson.org, as well as all the ventures that he's been working on. If you find yourself being a quarter million dollar type of organization trying to get to that million dollar plus, you definitely want to go to his website, possibly even schedule a call with him. As you noticed, for me, very, very helpful to hear this man speak about the typical challenges and the road ahead so you can gain that clarity. He can probably provide some level of clarity for you as well. Craig, it was an amazing, amazing time having you on the show. Thank you so much. And for everybody else out there, 
heal that money relationship, get that team together, and of course, keep selling with love. That was great. Thank you. I am your host, Jason Mark Campbell, and this is the Selling with Love podcast.